Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the absolute pleasure to welcome Lisa Bodell today. She is a globally recognized innovation leader and futurist. Lisa founded FutureThink in 2003 to provide a simple approach to the otherwise complicated topic of innovation. Working with leading brands such as Starwood, Merck, and Bosch, FutureThink has become the largest source of innovation research tools and training curricula in the world. She brings her compelling message to over 100,000 people a year, showing them how to eliminate mundane and unnecessary tasks from their everyday routine so that they can have more time for work that matters. She's the author of the provocative culture change book, Kill the Company, End the Status Quo, Start an Innovation Revolution, and her most recent book, Why Simple Wins, travels to over 40 countries and 48 states and sits on boards such as Navaris Diversity and Inclusion Board and the Global Advisory Council for the World Economic Forum. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the kind introduction. Yes. You know, I always laugh when, when people read my introduction or, you know, or my bio and I go, can I like snip that and send it to my mom? Cause she, <laughs> cause she thinks I fix printers. Exactly. Exactly. You know? It's kind of hard when you work in innovation or the fields that we do, it's kind of hard to put us in a box sometimes. So it's nice when somebody encapsulates it so well. So thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, I, you know, I like to start out my podcast with something called bullish and bearish. It's nothing painful, but I'm going to okay. ask you a couple questions. Um, just about random topics and kind of get your initial reaction, uh, bullish or bearish. And, you know, you're welcome to elaborate a little if you like, or you don't need to either way. You ready? Okay. I, I think I'm ready. All right. So human resources, HR will soon start hiring robots for open projects. Let's see. Am I bullish or bearish on it? Yes. Um, well, here's my, here's my thought on it. Um, I'm, I'm bullish. And the reason why for that is if something can be replaced by a human, then it should be. Um, I think we need to show our value in terms of what we can bring to the table. And if my, if my job is so um, task wrote, easy to do, that can be replaced by a robot, I'm not adding value. So as long as these are things that are recurring traits or recurring jobs that can be done uh, over and over and over again, and that would free me up or free up some of the human talent I have to do bigger and better creative thinking, that's great. Excellent. Excellent. Well, good, good, uh, good description as well. I think that's a great way to frame that up. All right. The next one, a billion dollar unicorn startup will be founded by a woman. Well, I'm, I'm completely <laughs> bullish on it. I mean, my, my, my reaction to that is, I mean, my reaction to that is, of course, of course it will, of course it should. I mean, statistically, uh, why wouldn't it happen? Um, my hope is, is that that unicorn turns into something stable and long lasting, whether it's you know, a woman or other. And I think that that's the important thing, which is um, I think women are particularly good at starting businesses that are realistic, that meet goals and are there for the long term. And I think that's what's really important in terms of creating value for many people versus just a short group uh, or a small group of shareholders. All right, great. And uh, the last one, uh, that consumers will choose to shop in augmented reality by 2020. Uh, well, let's see. I think I would be 
bullish on it in terms of if it became a reality and it was something that was good for people to uh, conveniently sit at my desk. And much like I do, frankly, with either Fresh Direct or using Alexa or using Amazon, I can get more done uh, because it's a really good shopping experience. Great. Um, I'm bearish that it will happen by 2020 because I think the technology has not been um, oh refined enough that either people in some instances don't get sick or really have a really uh, real shopping experience. My, my parallel to that is when even 10 years ago, people were saying that they would no longer go into dressing rooms. They would just be scanning their body and trying on clothes online and seeing a 3D model of it. That really hasn't taken off yet and happened. Um, and I don't even know if it should. But the point is with augmented reality, it really has to have, it has to give me more than if I was able to do it in person. And it has to add more value versus just being a cool thing. Excellent. Well, great responses. And hopefully they were fun questions and not too painful. <laughs> very, very fun. Keep going. All right. Well, you know, I'd like to start this out uh, once we get into a big topic like innovation by mm-hmm. kind of starting at the basics, which I'd love to hear how you define innovation, because I think that gets tricky for people. You could ask 10 people in a room and everyone will give you a different definition. So I'd love to hear yours. Well, there's some very basic things you can talk about. I mean, at its simplest core, you can say creativity is about thinking up new things, but innovative innovation is about doing them. So to me, it's not just about the idea. Everyone has ideas. It's about the execution and the action. So innovation is something that's not just new. That's easy. Um, it's not something that um, uh, is just something that's that's productive, but it's something that's valuable. And the reason I say that is there's a big difference between an idea and art which can be new and creative and interesting, but the value uh, in terms of value to a company, value to society, value to a person, that's the difference in terms of what makes it innovative. So there's a difference between being creative and being innovative, and there's a difference between something just being cool and trendy and new and actually adding value, which is what innovation does to me. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting because you know some people will take subtle uh, improvements either to a process or a product and call that innovative, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I don't argue that that is or isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll have people that will say, you know, it has to be something that's never been done before. And, and I don't know if I agree with it being quite that black and white. I don't agree with that. I think that innovation, we have to stop thinking of it as an either or it's a spectrum. Most like most things in life, right? We want everything to be black and white, but really it's, it's, it's a spectrum. And I think that there is, there's, status quo, you know, the business as usual stuff. Um, I don't think that's innovation, but I think that's something people have to do. Then it gets incremental. And of course, incremental can be very good, by the way. Adding a new product or feature, something that's small, can be quite innovative. Um, And then like adding an app to an iPhone, adding the cardboard sleeve that you can put on your, your coffee cup is a simple, quick innovation that really transforms how your coffee experience is done. Um, Those are incremental things that can make a big difference. And then that also frees you up to then move along to the disruptive scale. And the reason that's important to have both is um, risk, right? You have to have a basket of risk and um, capital investment and time. So that's why I don't think it can be an either or. It has to be a whole mix of all of them at the same time so you can actually get your best result. So let me ask you, you know, one, one thing I find fascinating lately, there's been a lot of research and a lot of articles written about the power of diversity of teams for innovation mm-hmm. and diversity of teams, not just necessarily male, female. It could be, you know, culture, language, you know, location, geography, you know, whatever it might yeah. be. So I use diversity as an all inclusive term, mm-hmm. uh, not just men and women. So so what what have you found when you've worked through, you know, with these 
thousands of companies over the, the last uh, you know, 15 years, sort of what are the things that you've found on those diversity of teams being more successful on the innovation spectrum? Sure. I, I mean, the research will show you that the more diverse the team in terms of background, um, culture, background can be, it can be male, female, it can be age, it can be cultural, and it can be thinking style. That can be from um, an introvert to an extrovert, to somebody who is very tactical, to someone who's very um, provocative in terms of their inquiry and questioning things. And those teams outperform those that are homogeneous because they question assumptions. They challenge each other. They're, they don't view things when you have opposing views as conflict. They view it as contrast, and it, pu- it pushes them to get a better, um, more thoughtful, well-rounded result. So I, you know, I have a lot to say about diversity because I sit on, one, I believe in it, and um, two, I sit on a lot of diversity boards. I sit at um, one within Novartis. I have sat with um, a gender inclusion and diversity board within the World Economic Forum and um, within some in the intelligence communities. And what's really interesting about that is whether it's government, military, um, civil, regulated, unregulated, across the board, teams that have diverse, um, inclusive groups are the ones that outperform because they're more thoughtful. And I think that that's something really interesting, both at the board level. That's why you asked about that, the female founder, the female leader. We need more of that leadership and other types of leadership. Um, And at the ground floor, everybody is capable of solving things and coming up with innovation. We have to get more of a, um, a mixed perspective to grow. So what happens when a leader is sitting at a table and it could be a leader of a small business, you know, medium business, it doesn't have to be these, you know, big billion dollar multinationals, right? I mean, because everybody's got some form of team unless they're a sole proprietor. But if you're sitting at a table with your, you know, team, whatever that means, and you all of a sudden realize it's, it's the same, (laughs) you know, like you look around the room and it's sort of the same person, uh, just in different bodies. Uh, whether it's, you know, an all male team or an all female team or, you know, whatever it might be. So same could mean all kinds of things. You know, what, what are the, what are ways in which you've helped companies tackle bringing diversity to a team that is already established? Uh, sure. So one of the things that you can do is uh, say that the, the rut that you fall into is that people don't know the difference between a groove and a rut. They think um, when everyone is thinking alike, it's easy, right? Because it flows. We all agree. We must be on the same page. We can get things done faster, but that doesn't mean that they're getting the best results. You know, they're all marching together right off the cliff. And so it's hard, right? It's hard for us to stop ourselves because it all looks and feels great. And the problem with that is we don't know what we don't know. And that's also very hard for people because when you tell them that they're not diverse enough, that causes kind of an upheaval. It slows things down. It makes people uncomfortable. But no progress happens when we're too comfortable. That's called complacency. And you need a little discomfort, uh, whether you arrive at the same result in the end, but at least you feel like you've tested that theory. So to get back to your question, how do we do that with people? One of the things I tend to do is maybe I don't shake up the internal team first, um, and I can give you some examples of how we do that. But we, we shake up the external team on a project basis. Let me give you an example. One of the groups that we worked with, um, a hotel property, um, we taught them to do um, uh, uncomfortable focus groups. And what do I mean by that? Sometimes when we ask people on the outside for ideas, you know, we talk about customer-driven innovation. And we talk to 
our fans, our customers, people that know us and love us and want to give us more ideas to how to make us better. I think you need to take the opposite approach and you need to talk to the people that hate you that don't want to work with you anymore, that wrote in and think that you suck. And the reason for doing that and why that helped this hotel group get better ideas is those are the people that know the problems. Those are the people that are going to tell you what you need to hear, but you might not want to hear. And that's a that's a refreshing way to start to get comfortable with, hmm, maybe we need to get some different perspective to get some new ideas. So externally is one way to force it. And then internally, a thing to do is... Um, People like to be in tribes. So what you can start to do with a group that's very homogeneous is start to invite a external homogeneous group in. For example, one thing we did at HBO is we talked to them about at their weekly status meetings, which were comfortable and mundane and completely unproductive, to have everybody start bring a plus one. And that plus one could be somebody that was a total surprise, didn't have to be approved, could be at any level, and had to come from a different group and even from outside the company if they wanted to. In fact, at one point, someone brought a competitor in <laughs> to attend their status meeting. And what that did was showed them how um, it's convenient uh, to have the same group of people get together over and over and over again on the calendar, but nothing new happens until you shake it up. So those are a couple examples, but I think that really starts to get people aware not comfortable, but aware with the fact that different minds can bring better results. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue to, to where I wanted to take this next, which is I think that there are these different kinds of mindsets, you know, a beginner's mindset where you've got people who are very comfortable and complacent, get mm -hmm. very caught in the routine and the muscle memory and DNA of the way they've always done it and getting them to a beginner's mindset of going, if I could erase the whiteboard and start all over again. And for those of you listening to the podcast, a whiteboard used to be what your teachers wrote. <laughs> chalk on. <laughs> but, you know, get up on the, on the uh, chalkboard and, uh, you know, start from scratch. Uh, and then you've got sort of this, this leader's mindset that is also very different that you talk about. And then, and then you've got this kind of growth mindset and, you know, can people, I guess, traverse between each of those and, and maybe what are the types of things to mix up teams, even as you said, by mindsets, right? The introvert, extrovert, beginner's mindset, leader's mindset. What is your thinking there? Um, my thinking in terms of having a beginner's mindset, you mean? Yeah. And, and just, you know, if you've got somebody who has very, a, a rigid thinking, you know, and uh, they're in a rut to use your term, right? They are not in a groove. <laughs> they are, they are in a rut. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And getting them to embrace the opportunity to have a beginner's mindset and maybe rethink, like even that example you just gave with HBO. I mean, if you had a, a team that was not willing to disrupt themselves, they would not have ever let a competitor in the room. Yeah. Well, the the thing I would say about beginner's mindset is that to me, this is all a psychology. We talk a lot about innovation, but what it comes down to is very basic human behaviors, which are risk, fear, power, and control. And that, that has to do with innovation, our ability to accept new risk, to let go of power, to have other people participate in the ideas, to um, not feel that you have to have control over it, to not have the ego to take credit for things that weren't yours. So I bring this up because the whole risk, fear, power, and control thing is something very important in terms of how you approach people um, to approach new things and new thinking and new 
people. Um, and I hesitate to use the term beginner's mindset because I don't need a beginner's mindset. I need an open mindset because I don't want to disvalue, this is what happens to people, um, or undervalue their years of experience because that is very important, especially with a scientist, an engineer, all those kinds of things, uh, an educator. Their years of experience um, can be a bad thing because they have assumptions that we need to change, but it can be a good thing in terms of how to navigate, how to get things done. So rather than a beginner's mindset, I like to think an open mindset. And we start typically depending on, well, how open people are to change, um, small steps. So that's why it could be just including a new group into a meeting, allow people a plus one once a once a, a week for a meeting. Um, allow people from the outside, your customers, to tell you things, but you don't have to necessarily listen to what they're saying. So you need to create a safe sp space to start that stretching to occur because people, like we talked about with the continuum, they won't get beyond incremental right away, right to disruption. You have to realize it might take them a little bit more time to do that stretch like a rubber band. Yeah, and, and I think... It, uh, it really gets challenging, uh, at least when I meet with customers. Um, you know, I, like you, get the wonderful opportunity to meet with, with people all the time that are um, struggling through and inspired by what's in front of us, right, and kind of what's next, if you will. But I, I'm going to pivot a little bit because I, I'm fascinated by the new book, you know, Why Simple Wins that you've mm. done, because I think that people view innovation as this kind of big, hairy, audacious goal, <laughs> You know, and it's a big word. It's, you know, digital transformation. It's transformation. It's innovation. It's, you know, it's crossing the chasm. It's Clayton Christensen. It's your work. I mean, you know what I mean? It's all this big, heavy stuff. Yeah, um, we made it you know, that way. Yeah. And, 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 you know, for all intents and purposes, sure. And I am a firm believer, and I think one of the things I love to do is to simplify the chaos. So, uh, you know, and bring it into terms of like, let's you know, bring it down to its most simplest form. So I wanted to hear from you that I'm, I'm guessing, right, that getting to simple doesn't mean easy or unimaginative, right? No, it doesn't. In fact, what's interesting is, is simplicity really is about getting comfortable with less, not more. And one of the, the there's a few myths we should dispel about simplicity. Um, but let me go back and start by saying, you know, innovation, we've made it a big deal because we like to make things seem, you know, big and bold and complex and it's technology and it's disruptive. And I, you know, I really fault a lot of the thought leaders who did that um, on one hand, because they tried to make it more, it's more hubris and more ego and all this other stuff. And it was only one, one part of innovation. And the, the intent was to get people excited, which is great. Unfortunately, at the same time, um, it made people um, make things more complex and be intimidated by it. And people have been innovating for for millions of, you know, thousands of years, not millions of years, but they, the, the way that we try to, we seem to make it, by making it more important, we make it intimidating. And that's not, not right. I think everyone is capable of innovation. They just need to know how, and they need to know that there's many different types of innovation. So going back to simplicity, I think um, one of the problems with innovation is we made it, um, we made it too complex. We made it that how we were going about it was all wrong. Um, we were putting things in place um, to help us be more innovative, like more processes, more rules, more, more governance structures. And in fact, those were the very things that ended up holding us back from doing a better job because we didn't have the time or the power to innovate as a result. Right? Things we were putting in place were actually putting a chokehold on it and taking our time away from doing important things. And in fact, when you ask people what they spend their day doing, this is why I wrote the Simplicity book, is they don't spend their day doing innovation. They can't get to it. You know why? Meetings and emails. 
that's what they spend their day doing. So we're telling people to do meaningful work, but what we actually have put in place is all the opposite of that. Meetings, emails, PowerPoint, etc. So the reason for me writing the simplicity book is if you want to start to innovate, we have to change how we work first. And how we work is very unnecessarily and self-imposed in terms of complexity. And if you can strip away that meaningless, um, self-imposed complexity, you can actually spend more time innovating and getting to the work that's valuable and that matters. So I have to say I'm very passionate about this topic in terms of killing complexity, getting to simplicity, because when you do that, when you get down to the simple, the essence, the valuable, that's where innovation thrives. That lets you move faster. It lets you focus on the customer. It lets you get rid of the crap that you're doing every day that adds no value and doesn't do anything for your customer at all. And I Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, you know, let's just say I'm an individual contributor, right? And I'm listening to this podcast and I go, amen. Like I'm screaming at the, you know, in my earbuds or whatever yeah. I'm listening to, right? Yeah, and I go, I, amen, yeah. right? I totally agree. Yep. But oh my God, I get 150 emails a day and oh yep. my God, I have seven meetings a day yep. and I'm an individual contributor. So I have very little control, Wrong. right? Absolutely over my... wrong. Nope. Okay. So, so how wrong. do I manage, how do I manage up and sideways to get some, uh, uh, you know, time back, if you will, in my days? That's a very good question. So one of the things that we always teach in our uh, coming out of my book, and then we, we have a killing complexity boot camp actually, that's been really, really successful because what we teach people is we often create the beast that we become a slave to because of our assumptions around how we think work has to happen. A lot of complexity that is created is self-imposed and unnecessary. And that's not easy to hear at first, but when, you know, through a series of exercises, we show how people are preconditioned for complexity. And the reason for that is, is because we value more, not less. And so think about the structures that we have in place right now. And then I'll get back to the thing of how individually we can affect things. The structures that we put in place right now within our own companies, um, we are rewarded for doing more managing more, um, controlling more revenue. We're not rewarded for less. So we are, it's almost like we're incented to put create to put, um, complexities in place. And that has to change. We have to get comfortable with less. Now, when you ask people what drives them crazy, right, in terms of their day-to-day, this gets into blaming the organization or blaming the individual. Um, and the answer is yes, both have blame. You, people will say at first, the reason I can't innovate, the reason things are so complex is because uh, we're regulated uh, or my organization is too complex. But what's the reality is companies that are within a regulated industry, whether it's healthcare, whether it's financial services, there are very simplified and um, non-complex organizations within those industries. They figured out how to do it. So you can't use those things as as excuses. When you really ask people what holds them back and what they spend their day doing, it's not the regulatory stuff. It's not the organizational stuff. It's the things we put in place to manage that stuff. It's the tactical and individual things. It's meetings, reports, and emails, and those are driven by our behaviors, which is risk, fear, power, and control. So if we can start to change our behavior, which we have a sphere of control over, a sphere of influence, we can start to change those things outwardly uh, in terms of how our organization is managed and how the, the work that we spend our day doing every day. So I, just to put a finer point on it, 
people do get a million emails a day. And a lot of that stuff comes from the outside. But there's a lot of things we can do internally with our teams in terms of agreeing to behaviors. In fact, we, we work with people to create a simplification code of conduct that agrees we won't create false urgency, that we won't over-communicate, that we won't use needless jargon, that we'll be clearer, um, that we will actually be able to say no to things. When we change those behaviors individually and as a team, we start to then push out and change the work culture in an organization. So there are most definitely things that individuals can control. We can change how we want to work by saying no, by not creating false urgencies, by shortening our own communications and start to model the behavior we and we want our direct reports to have. Yeah, I've seen some companies say, you know what, it's a no meeting Wednesday, right? And people just get time to think, catch up. You know, it's a... It's a, you know, do not have more than I'm making these up, but, you know, like three or four people on an email thread or, you know, if you if it's two emails longer than two replies, do a quick 10 minute meeting. Like, you know, whatever it could be to just streamline whatever the communication is, because uh, I think we we now have so many different ways to communicate. It's almost difficult to keep up, even if you're trying to streamline things. Well, that gets back to my mantra, which is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that's part of the issue with technology is we think, you know, there's so many different social media channels, we need to be on all of them. And my question is why, right? We need to get better at questioning things. In fact, one of the things that we do that is very empowering is we teach people how to kill things. And one of the most popular tools that we have is called Kill a Stupid Rule. And the reason this is important is because we have assumptions around how we think we need to work. And those assumptions are often false. Um, they've outlived their time, their old rules, they're all this kind of stuff. And so we, we get people into pairs, we break groups down into pairs, and we, we pair people up and give them 15 minutes. And we say, if you could kill any two rules at work that would help you be more innovative or let you get to more valuable things, what would they be? And here's what happens. People want more time because they've got more than two rules they want to kill. The things they come up with aren't necessarily rules, they're assumptions, or there are cultural annoyances, norms, all these kinds of things that we we have control to change. And by doing that, it gives people the freedom and the power to minimize, to get rid of what's not working, to create the space for more, um, and to identify redundancies and things that don't matter. Like uh, we did this with Merck. I did it with Ken Frazier, CEO of Merck, and we killed over 300 rules in a room with their top executives. And these were things like redundant reports, redundant meetings. Um, They were reporting structures that that they had the power to change, but they just didn't really, I guess, think about that they could do it. And so what's really cool about killing rules or even killing meetings is you get time back immediately. So you as an individual, if you kill rules, you could get one or two more hours, some people a day, but usually a week back, and that adds up quickly. So there, there, there are simple things, and I could list out 10 of those beyond, you know, no meetings Wednesdays, which are fine, but I, I think what's really neat besides just boxing out your time is making sure you have a systemic process to get rid of the things that kind of build up and calcify over time. Kind of like weeding a garden. You have to keep doing it again and again and again to make sure that only the best remains. Yeah, you know, there's there's that philosophy of, uh, you know, almost you don't say yes to things unless it's... Uh, going to further whatever it is that you're focused on, you know, because yes. you can be focused. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that's a good one, too. Uh, but, you know, the, this is sort of the the 
you know, the world we live in now, right? The speed in which we can communicate and we can get our access to information. As you said, there's so many channels, which one should we communicate via? And it might be one client uses this tool and another client uses that tool. And even though we're trying to simplify, <laughs> we, we have multiple masters, both up sideways and external. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, it all comes back to the individual. You know, I often say, uh, you know, I, I kind of pivot a little bit myself towards towards the sales role. And, you know, salespeople, one of the only things we can control is our behavior in front of a in front of a customer, right? Because everything else is almost dictated for us. Like those processes and rules are set by other people and we have to follow them. And there's only so many things we can get rid of, if you will. Uh, and so that personal uh, you know, behavior, uh, you know, comes back to if you're willing to make behavior changes on your own on the some of the things you just outlined, it will pay itself back to you with time. And, yep. uh, you know, one of my other guests, Naomi Simpson, she's on uh, Shark Tank Australia. She's like, you know, I can make more money, but I can cannot make more time. So, you know, it's very precious. Yep. This is the one thing we talk about, which is I don't understand why we get so mad when people waste our money, right? But we aren't the same level of mad when people waste our time. <laughs> yeah. you, in your head, you're going, oh my God, why am I here? Boom, on the desk. Boom, why am I here? Why am I here, right? <laughs> when someone wastes your money and you just get mad, you know, it's just when you when they waste your time, you all, it is really, you do really reflect and go, this is totally my fault. I shouldn't have said yes. You know, why am I here, right? Um, I mean, so, I, I think that's the one thing I will say about simplicity and complexity, which is, you know, People, they do this unintentionally. People have the best intentions, but unfortunately, you know, they, they, things get put in place in, in companies in terms of the processes, procedures, et cetera, because people are trying to, they're trying to solve problems. They're trying to innovate. They're trying to do new things. And so they're, you know, it's not like they're maliciously trying to, to make things complex. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so that what's nice about that is it makes people realize, you know, it was with the best intent. But unfortunately, unintentional results, and they're often the good. The bad news is, is that it creates this complexity. The good news is, is that it's self-imposed, and we can change that. So that's what we want to look at: is we do have some control. We can get rid of things, and the more we start to do that with small steps, and other people model the behavior, I will tell you that it's contagious. And I, you know, I want to throw in one thing here, which is one thing we did with. Um, at HBO is we did a kill a stupid rule with one of their big groups. And I will tell you, it was so successful and they were so excited. They created their own internal Google doc and shared it with other groups. And the result of that was, is this group became the most envied group. People were jealous of them because they said to their people outside said to their bosses, Hey, why can't we do that? Why can't we kill rules? Why can't we simplify? Simplification is contagious and it creates envy. And I will say from an HR standpoint or a leadership standpoint, that's not such a bad thing because you want people to envy good behaviors, not repeat bad behaviors. This has been just fantastic, Lisa. Really, I so appreciate all your wisdom around this. And, you know, I, I'm going to start my kill a stupid rule list as soon as right. we get off this podcast, because <laughs> I'm sure I could get some time back myself. Yeah, no, it's uh, but you have this very unique perspective. I'd love to end, if you don't mind, you know, your work with the World Economic Forum. I'd love to hear, you know, what one or two things, uh, you know, inspires you right now about some of the work that's going on there that's that's really kind of out in the future that can really have a big, big difference for us just as, you know, as people, as human beings. So one of the things I love, there's a few things that I love. One of the things specifically as it, as it relates to um, the gender and inclusion work is that it's a very holistic global perspective. I think one of the things that's a problem 
for those of us listening on the podcast is that we are very fortunate. And I'm assuming that most of the people on this podcast have, you know, they, they've worked very hard. They're either entrepreneurial or have worked in big companies. You know, they, they have a roof over their heads. They are safe. They are, you know, they make money. They have first world problems. And this is not the case for the large majority of people around the world. And so what that does for me is it makes me, when I work with the World Economic Forum, it broadens my perspective, kind of bring this full circle to where you started in the, in the podcast. It makes me a little uncomfortable because I hear about the, the issues that people have to wrestle with that I thank God that I don't. You know, I don't worry about my safety as a schoolgirl um, walking to school. Um, I don't worry about being threatened, getting an education. I don't worry about necessarily being denied an employment opportunity because of my, my religion, my race, my, my country, my politics, etc. So I feel very fortunate from where I, I live in is that, you know, the, the things that we tend to, to think about here are how do we get more women on boards? And the thing that the World Economic Forum does is make sure that people are, they have basic needs as well, education, safety, housing. And what that does is that really gives me a good perspective, not just around how lucky I am, but also in terms of we need to broaden our thinking beyond just the executive level to all people in an organization and in our culture. So, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats. And we need to really think about that in terms of the long term, not just the short term and next quarter's earnings. Yeah, you know, the next billion people that come online are not going to come online in first world countries. So they are not. They are not. So even the things that get developed, the products that get sold, the solutions that get built, we have to think about an entirely new generation of people that know nothing before what we give them tomorrow. So thank you again so much, Lisa, for your time. Uh, I, you. am, I am humbled by your willingness to attend my What's Next podcast today. And I think it was just fascinating and informative. And thank you for being here. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Loved that conversation with Lisa Bodell. She just knew exactly how to help us all get excited about innovation and not fear it and not be intimidated by it. And then more importantly, what we can do every day to be much better at getting comfortable with simple and get rid of all the complexities that hold us back. You know, sometimes we are our own worst enemies and changing our own behavior can have huge implications for ourselves personally, for our teams, and for our company. So if you're willing to do the work and change how you work first, everything around you should come together. And if you're in charge of innovation, remember, it isn't about having just a beginner's mindset or a leader's mindset. You have to be open to change, even with all your years of experience, even with all your understanding, and make sure you take your people on this journey with you. I hope you fully enjoyed this podcast. Please tune in for our next one. Subscribe, give a review, tell your friends, share on social. Appreciate you listening to the What's Next podcast. Have a great day.